So uh, we are in this big, crazy series. We're in the, this is the penultimate sermon. Does anybody know? Yeah. Second to last. Thank you. Uh, so we are doing a question and answer session, book of Revelation. So uh, the book of Revelation is without a doubt one of the most loved slash hated books in the entire Bible. Um, for a lot of people, they don't read it. A lot of other people, it probably just scares the pants off of them. Uh, so they stay away from it. I think one of the, the things that it can really do in a really damaging way is it can paint a false picture of God that would ultimately stop you from trusting him. You know, because it, like, what's the point? Like, how are you supposed to, you know, what's, how, how are we supposed to talk about, like, God who's altogether beautiful and loving if just, like, at the end of the day, he just comes and slaughters everybody? It's kind of a hard thing. I don't know if you've noticed, but I certainly have uh, in my life. It's kind of a hard sell for us to go out into the world and say, man, come to Jesus, man. He is altogether loving and kind and beautiful and compassionate, and he loves you. And like, if you don't give your heart to him, he's going to kill you any day now. It's actually a really hard sell. And if you haven't noticed, uh, the world is not really uh, responding to that message, maybe in the way that they uh, used to. Luckily for us, we don't have to uh, cave on the truth because the truth of Jesus is uh, more beautiful than that. And when you, read, uh, when you read the Bible correctly, you actually discover a picture of Jesus that is the opposite of that. Certainly when you look at the book of Revelation, it shows a picture uh, that's the complete opposite of that. Quick overview, just so, because uh, I know there's a lot of people who have been here for the first time uh, tonight. Quick overview of what we've talked about so far in the book of Revelation. I'm trying to go fast. Can you tell? I'm trying to go super fast. Okay, so we talked about this whole, it's this whole apocalyptic vision. It's this crazy thing, this guy by the name of John, he has this big vision, he's in jail, he has this big vision, uh, and we're introduced to the self-sacrificial lamb. It's the first scene uh, in, in uh, the book of Revelation, and it represents God, and it represents a God who gives his life for people. People were expecting the Messiah to be a mighty warrior who comes and slays people, a mighty lion-like warrior. Instead, what was revealed in the book of Revelation is that instead of the ferocious lion god or the beast god or the dragon god, some other pictures in Revelation, what we see is the lamb-like god looking as if it had just been slaughtered. And so this is the ultimate picture, the true revelation of what God looks like is this beautiful little lamb. Then, you're, then you see all sorts of other weird things in the Bible. You, you see a, a dragon that comes, and there's a beast that comes. There's a false prophet that comes. There's a prostitute that comes. Uh, and we talked about these, uh, but they represent, we've talked about this, listen to the podcast if you, if you weren't here, but they all represent basically Satan and the empire that would seek to keep people in captivity. They represent like the evil systems of the world that would stop people from trusting lamb-like power. And so uh, they, they would rule, I could say it like this, they would rule by might rather than by self-sacrificial love. It's the opposite. And our calling, John says, our calling as followers of Christ is to follow not, not the beast, not the dragon, uh, but to follow the lamb wherever he goes. Last week we talked about the frogs. I don't know if you guys remember the frogs, but it says that uh, there's the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, and there's a frog that lives in all of their mouths. And these represent, because John just comes out and tells us what it rep- represents, it represents the lying uh, demonic spirits that lead men, the way that John says, it leads men to Armageddon. Or another way of saying that is lead men uh, to war. And so these are the, the lying spirits. And again, the point is this, that we as followers of the lamb are called to follow the lamb and not the frogs. The, the, the idea of the book of Revelation, the common thread is this. We follow the lamb, we don't follow the dragon. We follow the lamb, we don't follow the beast. We follow the lamb, we don't follow the frogs. 
Uh, so we have a bunch of questions, and the reason is not just so we can get all like theological in here uh, and you know just try to be all smart with ourselves here, but uh, the truth is, man, if you believe broken things about God, you're never going to totally trust Him. And you know, bad ideas, bad little like religious ideas that we've left in our own heads, if those aren't kind of dealt with, you'll have a hard time really trusting Him. And you'll, you'll wish that you really loved Jesus more. I don't know if anyone's ever felt that. It's like, man, I wish I loved Jesus more. I wish I like thought about Him a little bit during the day. Like, I don't think about Jesus. If I'm being honest, I don't think about Jesus at all during the day. Well, if you have bad, broken ideas about like basically a schizophrenic God, that will stop your heart from really caring for Him. So I think it's one of the reasons that this is not just theology book, but it's something that's really important for us to kind of figure out as we go forward. Okay, so I have seven questions. I've actually, I'm hoping to answer all the questions that were submitted. I, I uh, bundled a few of them in. Uh, kudos for you guys who asked questions. I've kind of consolidated a few of the questions uh, to be kind of some big topics. So we've got, I think, seven questions, and they answer hopefully everybody's question. So here we go. Question and answer session, my first ever the book of Revelation. Here we go. Question number one. Can you explain, oh, and we're starting out kind of easy. Can you explain the description of Jesus in chapter one? So a lot of people might not understand this question, so I'm going to read it. Revelation chapter one and verse 12 says this. I turned around. This is the beginning of the vision. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like burning fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and, among, uh, oh, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Okay, So we've talked about apocalyptic literature, if you've been here before, but the idea with this type of writing is uh, not necessarily all the details, but the overall picture that it paints for us. And so we understand that the main purpose of this is talking about this huge, bright, powerful Jesus. But sometimes, in some specific places in Revelation, the specific elements mean something, and we know in this case it does, because John goes on to explain what most of these things uh, mean. So first off, it says he's surrounded, there's seven uh, lampstands, and there's uh, seven branches that have seven candles. So these represent uh, the church. We know that just because he says it. So the seven means the complete church, and so he's holding it. He's holding this lampstand uh, to point out that the church is preserved by him. So that's what the lampstands. Also, he's wearing this robe. This is Jesus. He's wearing this robe down to his feet, and he has a sash. And this is like the clothes of a judge. It's basically saying this, that Jesus is the only one worthy to judge. None of us are worthy uh, to make any sort of judgments on other people. Uh, It also says his hair is white as wool. We can see this from the book of Daniel and also the book of Proverbs. This is talking about wisdom. He has eyes of fire. This is talking about piercing vision, that he's the one who can see through uh, the the facade, all the things that we pretend uh, like to put up in other people. He has piercing vision. He can see through right into uh, our hearts. Also, it says his feet are like bronze glowing in a furnace. And this means, uh, you also see this in the book of Daniel. This is talking about judgment. And so it says he's, it, and the fact that it's his feet is talking about he's marching towards this ultimate judge, judgment. And of course, you guys know Uh, As believers, this is the judgment where he declares us righteous because of Jesus Christ. So it's not the judgment to fear, it's the judgment to anticipate. Okay, so it says his voice is like the sound of rushing waters. This is from Ezekiel. Uh, This is the power of his words. 
Two more. It says his sword is coming out of his mouth. We see this multiple times in the book of Revelation. This is how he fights. This is how Jesus fights. He fights by slaying lies. This is not, he cuts through, you could say he cuts through the deception to get to the truth. He doesn't literally slay people. Uh, he divides the truth and the lies. And he frees people by slaying the lies. It's not, this isn't the sword that he cuts people's heads off. If that's true, it wouldn't be coming out of his mouth. It doesn't make any sense. It's symbolic of the power of his words. Uh, lastly, it says that his face was like the sun. It just means that he's brilliant. He's shining like the sun. Also, it says uh, in Matthew 13 that the righteous will become like him, shining like the sun. So this is a prophecy of us. So this is what it means. Okay, so that was an easy one. We started off easy. We didn't get too controversial. Uh, yet, hopefully, you would all agree with that. But there's going to be some stuff in here you might not agree with. So here we go. Question number two. I'm going to lose track. I didn't number them. Question number two. Uh, this may be silly, but what about the mark of the beast and us not being able to buy or sell? Raise your hand if you've ever heard this. Raise your, yeah, there's a lot of people that think, man, there's this mark of the beast that we're going to get. And if you don't get like this computer chip in your hand, you're not going to be able to eat. So you're going to starve to death. And that's like part of the tribulation uh, for us. What I believe that it really means, it's all about uh, emperor worship. We talked about this last week. We talked about the beast that the Bible talks about. The beast uh, basically symbolizes the violence of the empire, specifically the violence of the empire of the day named Rome. Super specifically, the violence of the empire of Rome embodied in this evil emperor named, any guesses? Nero, Caesar Nero. Right, so it talks about putting his mark, which is 666, that's a cryptogram of Nero Caesar, we talked about that last week, on their foreheads, which symbolizes their minds, and on their hands, which symbolize their deeds. And so there was priests dedicated to uh, emperor worship in the day. They were convincing people to worship the beast. They were convincing people to worship Nero. So in Revelation 13, 11, it says this, Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon, which is a weird thing because it's saying it kind of looked like it kind of looked like Jesus in a way. It sort of looked like Jesus, but like when it spoke, it kind of sounded like Satan. So kind of it's, it's like basically it looks like Jesus, but it's an imposter. Verse 16, it also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So, of course, Nero or 666. Verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Okay, we already talked about this last week that this is talking about Emperor Nero Caesar. Basically, John has this vision where people, uh, people who don't get Nero's number, either on their hands or on their forehead, they can't buy. They can't buy. And church history has shown, I've actually, I was talking to Pastor Cindy about it this morning. Church history showed us that this has happened, that this, this already came to pass. In fact, in the Roman Empire, Empire, em, whoa, Empire, <laughs> Empire, I'm going too fast, huh? In the Roman Empire, for a time, uh, unless you offered the required sacrifices to God, a.k.a. Nero, you weren't allowed in the marketplace. So it's talking about unless you were to adopt the, the uh, civil religion of the day, you weren't allowed to be in the marketplace. So it was talking about people's uh, livelihoods. So people were uh, kind of faced with this really interesting choice. The Christians of the day, they either went to submit to Nero, offer a sacrifice to a false God, or they could risk losing their livelihood. And the purpose of all of this is just reminding these Christians who are about to be killed, hey, listen, no matter what, 
You follow the lamb. You don't follow the beast. You don't follow near, you don't follow false gods, but no matter what the cost, you follow the one true God. You follow the self-sacrificial lamb. Okay, number three. We're getting a little, a little bit edgier here. This is going to be the place where you're going to be thinking, whoa. Okay, here we go. Revelation talks about bringing the Christians from their graves into heaven a lot. Does that mean Christians don't go to heaven right after they die? I think it's a really interesting question, don't you? Okay, so uh, I am with uh, N.T. Wright on this. He's a, a famous theologian, still alive. But he says this, that there's two things that we have to talk about when we're talking about after-death experience. We have to talk about life after death, and we have to talk about life after life after death, which is what uh, N.T. Wright says. And he believes this, and I agree with him. He says, that, man, if, if I were to die today, let's say you were to die today, there would be some state of existence that you would find yourself in, but it wouldn't be the final one. It talks about this in Revelation, that there's this new heaven and this new earth, and it hasn't come yet. Our final dwelling place that's still going to be built has not been uh, built yet. And so we can tell that this hasn't come because we still, get, we still die, we still get sick, we still kill each other with nuclear bombs and stuff like that. So we can tell that this isn't the new heaven and the new earth, of course. So for you as a believer in 2015, you end up doing this very interesting split where uh, wherever you go, you go in a spiritual sense, right? Because your spirit ends up leaving and there's this thing where you're existing and, and the instant you, know, you die, you're transferred into the presence of God, but then your body stays here. You get cremated, you get buried, you, know, you get like put on the mantle if you're a moose or whatever, but your body <laughs> stays here. Poor moose. So there's this weird, interesting split where there's, where there's part of you that's been left here, and then there's a part of you that goes on uh, to be with God. So, uh, but there is a time, Revelation teaches, there's a time when we get our bodies back, and that happens with the new heaven and the new earth. In fact, um, Paul, when talked about death, he says this, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he's contrasting leaving your body in order to be with the Lord. And of course, obvious, there's lots of different beliefs about uh, what this all looks like. Some people think that when you die uh, until Jesus comes, like nothing happens. Like you're just, you're just hanging out until Jesus finally comes and uh, raises you from the dead. Lots of first century Jews uh, believe this. They, Paul refers to the people who've died already as sleeping, which kind of seems like a bit of an unconscious type of uh, situation. So some people certainly thought that. It's actually pretty unusual in modern day for people to think that there is no, that you're like in a sleeping state until Christ comes again. Uh, I also don't really believe that, but I do think that there's a really interesting dynamic about us going and being in the presence of God, but there's still something still to be done. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1 says this. I think it's a super cool scripture. You're going to love it. Uh, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in, talking about your body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Listen to this, verse 2. Meanwhile, we groan, clothed instead, or we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. So it's weird because you see Paul, he's talking about this thing where we have gone and we're, we're now with the Lord, but we're naked. And so we don't like that. And so we long to be reunited 
uh, with our heavenly dwelling. And so I think that that's talking about being reunited with your body when the new heaven and the new earth comes. I'm not going to like uh, correct somebody at a funeral or anything. So, but I, I do think that we, we are instantly transported into uh, the presence of God, but there is this thing where we're going to be reunited uh, with our body. By the way, this is why some Christians aren't cremated. I don't know if you know anybody like that. They don't want to be cremated because they think that they're going to come. To th- it seems a little weird to me. Because you know, like either way, you're turning into dirt. You know, like it could be in this afternoon or like five years from now. But either way, you're turning into dirt. But any, but anyways, I do believe that there is this thing where our where our bodies uh, are reunited with uh, when when new creation comes. And so when it talks about like people like rising from the grave, this is an artistic telling of us being uh, reunited with our body. To me, here we go. Question number four. Okay. Here we go. Where does the church of today fall in terms of the seven churches? Can we fall under each of them? Okay, so uh, quick review. The book of Revelation is written to seven specific churches in Asia Minor at the time. And so uh, first off, this book was written to seven historical churches, seven actual churches with real locations, with real people in real situations. So none of, these, uh, none of those churches are referring directly to us. And that's not to say that it doesn't apply to us. They certainly, they certainly do. We actually read about them. Uh, God addresses all of the seven churches individually in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, I've written down the brief summary. Uh, one, Ephesus is the church that has forsaken its first love. Next, we have Smyrna, which is uh, the church that would suffer persecution. We have Pergamum, which is the church that needed to repent. We have uh, Thyatira, which uh, is the church that had a false prophetess. We had the church of Sardis that had fallen asleep. We had the church of Philadelphia that had endured patiently. And we have the church of Laodicea, which uh, had lukewarm faith. So I think that that all applies today. Heck, I think all of that like, applies to me. Like, just depends on the day. I'm lukewarm literally all the time. You know what I mean? I've fallen asleep all the time. But it's actually kind of a good lesson in uh, correct Bible reading is that we don't read the book of Revelation and say, aha, Jesus is saying to us that we've fallen asleep. No, he hasn't. He said that to the church of Sardis 2,000 years ago. But that doesn't mean that we can't ask ourselves the question, have we fallen asleep? Great question to ask. But don't read the, the book and say, God is saying to you, and then take it out of context. You know, people, like, people will come and be like, man, God says like the blood of the unsaved people is on our hands. Like, he didn't say that. He, he, he didn't say that to you. He said that to Ezekiel, like way back in the day, when he was calling him to be a prophet to speak the truth to the nation of Israel in this specific setting. But he's not saying it uh, specifically to you. So I think all of the things that we see in these seven churches can apply to the church today. But to say that one of them is addressed to us or this certain period of time, I think it's reading it incorrectly. Okay, number, are you guys doing okay? Are you dying? Are you dying? Okay, okay, okay. I feel like you might be dying. That's good. Okay, okay. Uh, Here we go, here we go. Uh, let's see. Can you explain the meaning behind the seven plagues? Remember the seven plagues that come and they wipe out a third of the earth? There's seven bowls with seven plagues. Comes and wipes out a third of the earth. So remember, we're talking about a Picasso painting here. Did I type it wrong? Oh, (laughs) everyone's like, what? Sorry. Pla. 
Can I be real? I'm not positive how to fix that. The first you? The first you. Okay. <laughs> oh, oh y'all, y'all knew. Yeah, of course y'all knew. Of course you knew. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so remember, the book of Revelation is a Picasso painting where everything in the book is symbol. So when, when, we see, when we see a plague coming and it comes and destroys one-third of the earth, we don't believe that this is an actual plague coming and destroying one-third. That's not consistent with the rest of the story. In fact, if you think that he comes and kills one-third of the people at this part of the story, it doesn't even make sense because he doesn't even judge humanity for like way later in, into the book. So uh, we don't mistake, as readers of Revelation, we don't mistake symbol for reality. And, that, and that's the ticket. So we're not looking for an actual plague. We're looking for what this symbolizes. And so uh, I want to say this weird thing. It's a, uh, kind of a weird shift, but I think it's really rewarding if you'll uh, be with me here. So I want to make a weird point that a lot of scholars think when it comes to the timeline of the book of Revelation, it's not a linear timeline where this happens and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens. They call it a cyclical timeline which is something happens and it continues to happen and he tells it in a different way. It's like you're reliving the same day a few different times and he's telling it in a different uh, type of setting. And in in the book of Revelation, it gets more and more uh, severe. So a lot of people think, a lot of scholars think uh, that the breaking of the seven seals, the blowing of the seven trumpets, and the releasing of the seven plagues, these are kind of the big things that happen, are all the same thing. This is all the same thing that's ultimately uh, happening. And ultimately, it doesn't make any difference if you think that or not, because it's all symbolic anyways. You know, so this is all symbolic. But if you, if you could entertain, I, I think it's really true, is the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven plagues, it's all communicating the truth that you see in the book of Revelation, which is Jesus coming to slay lies in order to free the people. And this is, what, this is what you're seeing in the book of Revelation. So when you see the seven seals, it's revealing the truth of who God is. Remember the slain little lamb? So when these things pop, what we, what we see is we are able to see uh, who God really is. And then we see these uh, seven trumpets that blow. And this is the proclamation of the word of God that sets people free. And then you see the seven plagues that come and the destruction that they bring. And it's the destruction of the empire that keep people in bondage. So it's all talking about this thing that happens with Jesus Christ where he comes and he has victory over Satan and he frees the people. He destroys the bondage in order to free the people. So destruction, it's basically the destruction of Rome power so that people can see lamb-like power. And if you think that sounds a little bit weird, well, just keep in mind that this is Revelation chapter 16. So there's a time when God comes as uh, the judge and judges people. We'll talk about that later. But that's like way later in the story. This is way before that. If you think that God actually comes and kills people at this point in the story, it's really silly because they're all up and being redeemed uh, in the chapters following. So again, it's uh, not literal. It's him slaying the lies in order to free the people. Uh, Okay, so here we go. Here we go. Let's see. Six? I must have more than one, two, three. Okay, I've got more than seven. Maybe eight. We'll see. Okay. Uh, Do you believe any parts of Revelation have to do with the end or Jesus coming back physically? Uh, If you've been here, you know that I've said this, that I I do believe some things have to do with the end, but it's primarily about revealing the character of Jesus Christ. It actually says that in the first verse of the book, uh, that what this is doing is revealing the character of Jesus Christ. So there's clearly some things about 
uh, the book that are about the end. But the question is this, how much? The question is how much of the book is about the end? I have a little timeline that I've shown you before. So let's go ahead and put up that. At least I hope I do. Yeah, okay, so here we go. This is the basic breakdown of Revelation, Revelation 1 through 3. It's all setting the scene. It's pretty dull. He's talking to the churches. He has a vision. He's in prison, all these different things. Uh, Revelation 4 through 20 is this big, crazy, epic, weird, disturbing vision portion of the book. Uh, We see lions and lambs. We see Satan. We see the false prophet. We see seals. We see scrolls. We see angels with trumpets. We see seven bowls containing seven plagues. That's all in this big, like, center section of the book. Revelation 21 through 22, the tone of the book really shifts from like this really scary, all this weird kind of talk. It shifts into John describes this new heaven and the new earth. And so this is talking, they call it the holy city or they call it the new Jerusalem. And it's completely beautiful. And it's talking about uh, the end. It's talking about uh, how God wraps this whole thing up. There's no more crying. There's no more pain. There's no more suffering. So I would say the last two, or even if we were to be generous, two and a half chapters of the book of Revelation are certainly talking about the future. And everyone would agree on that. Bible scholar and author of weird Christian books would both agree that the last part, we all agree, (laughs) that the 4 through 20, we don't agree on. But the uh, 21 through 22, we certainly uh, do agree on. It's a big, beautiful picture of redemption and love. And it's still apocalyptic literature. So there's still like uh, some surrealistic kind of things that uh, happen in there. It's not a technical telling. It's an artistic telling of uh, God's new coming kingdom. For example, chapter 21, we read about uh, a bride that's a city and a city that's a bride. So it's a little bit weird. It's talking about you. and talk, It's all in this like new heaven and new earth. We read that there's no longer any sea, that God himself will be with us, that he wipes away every tear from our eye. There's no longer any death. There's no longer any mourning. There's no longer any crying. There's no longer any pain. And this is, uh, he's all talking about Christ's second coming. But he's talking about Christ's second coming in an artistic way. See, we as believers, we're not sitting around hoping that, like, the sea will dry up. No, it's not talking about the actual sea. In fact, that would not be a blessing to lots of people and lots of animals. Like, that would not be a blessing. That's not what we're hoping, that the sea is actually going to dry up. It sounds horrible. Like, the whole world would just be a huge, horrendous desert. No, the sea is symbolic of evil. So it's saying there's going to be no more evil. So he's still talking in this apocalyptic way. Later in chapter 21, he talks about the dimensions of God's coming kingdom, which is a weird thing to say. Uh, it's, he describes it as this big cube. It's 100 and, uh, wait, uh, 1,400 miles wide, tall, and long. So 1,400 miles. And so then there's this river with the water of life streaming, flowing down Main Street. And there's no night And so there's no need for lampstands because God himself will shine upon us. And this is all symbolic of our future heavenly home. You can look, I don't have time, but there's all these different jewels that are described. These are all like wedding gifts. And he's talking about how God has prepared a place especially for us. But they're all symbolic of the beauty of of Christ's second coming. Okay, so here we go. Uh, Here we go. Get ready for some of the scary stuff. No, that wasn't scary yet. All right, here we go. Can you talk about the final judgment? Okay, so uh, here we go. So Jesus, all the way through uh, from the beginning of the Gospels all the way to the end of Revelation, he basically makes it really clear that this whole thing is going to end and that there's a time when everything is going to be given an account of. 
And we learn a couple things because he makes it really clear to us. Uh, a couple things. One is it's the decision that he alone makes. It's not a decision that we make. And it's Jesus who comes as the judge. So two quick thoughts. Uh, number one, when it comes to the final judgment, number one is this, we are not to judge, he is. He makes that super clear. And number uh, two, in Matthew 25, this is basically where a lot of this stuff comes from. Matthew 25, we see Jesus, and he says this, when it comes to the final judgment, the thing that I'm going to tell you is y'all are going to be surprised. That you think, you think it's going to be a certain way, and it's going to be different. The people who thought that they were like the insiders they're going to be surprised to find like they're not as inside as they thought they were. You think you're the inside? You guys think you're the insiders and everybody else is the outsider? He says, you guys aren't the insiders. And, the other, and then there's other people. Listen to this. This is amazing. Maybe possibly theology changing. There's uh, people who say to God, hey, look, I didn't know you. And he says, yes, you did. They say, I didn't know you, Jesus. And he says, yes, you did. And then he reframes the conversation and he says that, he says this, when you reach out to other human beings, I'm counting that as you reaching out to me. It's a very interesting thought. And look, don't make a new theology out of that. Like, all the Christians are going to hell and all the, all the people who give to the poor, you know, they're like all going to heaven or whatever. The point... The point is this. He's saying, you don't know. You don't know what I'm going to do, and I'm not telling you. But the thing that I will tell you is this. You're going to be friggin' surprised. <laughs> That's seriously what he's saying. He says, like, you think you understand. Like, you're, you're the one who, you know, who thinks that you understand, like, who's in and who's out. He's, like, he's saying, you don't, you don't know. And just know this, that God's mercy is um, wide-ranging. And he has surprising ways of meeting people and showing him his mercy. And Andrew Womack, he talked about this a long time ago in Bible college. He says, look, you want to be as accurate as possible as a Christian. And when it comes to your thinking, he says, but if, if you are going to be wrong, if you're going to err, err on the side of God's mercy, not on the side of God's wrath. And that should be like the, the chorus that we all sing. That when we say, man, I don't know, like, I don't know how this judgment thing is going to wrap up, but I do believe because I don't know, you know where I'm going, more towards the side of mercy and less to the side of wrath. You know, Jesus has all of these, there's a ton, like the majority of Jesus' parables are called by theologians reversal parables because it turns the answer that everyone thought they knew on its head. And so almost all of Jesus' warnings come to people who think that they're the insiders, He's consistently warning the people who think they're on the insiders. And then to the outsiders, he's consistently saying, look, you guys are actually the insiders. And it's just amazing to think that the takeaway in all of this is this humility. Like, don't assume that you're the one on the inside and people who don't believe like you are on the outside. The, the, the warning of the parable or the, all of the stories and what Jesus is even saying in Matthew 25 is don't be the type of person who says, I'm so glad that we're on the inside and too bad about all you guys that are on the outside. You may find that you guys aren't on the inside as you thought and those people you assumed were on the outside, maybe they're the people who are on the inside. And so, uh, so the, the whole idea is this, you might be surprised and you are not the person who is worthy to make those judgments about other people. I, I, one time, remember that All Is Grace series? I played a video 
in, in uh, Maine. And so there was this guy and he was talking. He was talking about the grace of God and how amazing God is and like how much he loves you. And so then there was this guy, and I, I guess he was in a Catholic church. Okay. And so then there was this guy and he came up to me after service or before service one day. And he said, hey, hey, I just want you to know that video that you played of that guy preaching in that Catholic church. He said, I'm very offended that you would play that on those screens. He said, he said, I have, he says, I have family members burning in hell right now because of that cult. To which I said, are you sure? <laughs> and he, he just looked at me like very much older guy than me. Okay. Probably, I don't know, seventies, eighties. He put his finger and he said, don't play that again. The, the truth is this, man, you don't know. You are not worthy to say, like, don't you freaking dare say Catholics don't go to heaven. If there's, if there's possibly a more ignorant thing that we could say, Jesus is saying this, you're going to be freaking surprised, and so you don't make the judgment. Okay, okay. <laughs> Hello. All right, all right, all right. Uh, what we do know is this, that no one deserves eternal life. And that eternal life is a gift that is given to humanity by Jesus Christ. And when it talks about judgment in the Bible, what we, uh, what we see, it's, it's amazing that, you know, like we don't deserve it. It's, call, it's him calling us righteous, even though we're not righteous. Do you see the scandal there? He says, you were righteous, even though we were not righteous. And l- listen, how that works, when that works, we don't know. But don't get cocky and act like you know. Don't get cocky and act like you're the person who understands how, like, the atonement works to pay for somebody else's sin. You don't understand that. Like, the sinner's prayer has only been around for, like, 100 years. There's been people who have followed Christ and received his forgiveness without saying the sinner's prayer for thousands of years. So let's not be the people who think that we totally understand what it means uh, to receive uh, his forgiveness. There's going to be lots of surprises when we see God's judgment. So when, it's just interesting when you think about judgment, it's all kind of scary. You know, it's kind of, oh my gosh, talking about the judgment of God. But it's interesting when you read Psalm 96 and Psalm 98, we see this, that all creation means humans, animals, it even says the vegetables. Uh, they sing for joy when they see God coming to judge the earth. And this is kind of a weird thing to think, like that they're singing for joy uh, when they see judgment coming. And you'd be like, why would that be good news? Why would that be good news that God is judging? Well, the key is remembering who God is fighting against. He's not, he, he's not fighting against flesh and blood. His battle is not flesh and blood. Our battle is not flesh and blood. He's fighting against the empire that keeps people in bondage. So in, in Psalm, what you're seeing is the world cries out in victory at the liberation uh, of themselves, of the oppression, the sight of their own liberation when God comes to judge, it symbolizes their freedom from the tyranny of the bondage that they've been living in. Okay, here we go. That one was kind of edgy. You doing all right? All right. Okay, <laughs> it's not going to get better. Two more questions. <laughs> uh, here we go. Second to last question. What's the deal with the Antichrist? This sounds like a, a Seinfeld joke. What is the deal? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure you're great. I know exactly what you mean. Okay. Okay, so people think, uh, I, I, let this cook your noodle a tiny bit. The Antichrist is actually not mentioned in the book of Revelation. Not even one time does it say anything about the Antichrist. 
people think, people think that the Antichrist and the false prophet, which is what it talks about uh, in the book of Revelation, are the same, but uh, it's not a great connection there. Personally, I believe that the Antichrist is not a person, but it's a rising spirit that is anti-Christ. It opposes the message of Jesus Christ. I've said this, the word the Antichrist is not found in Revelation, and it's found a whole four times in the entire Bible. It's amazing how much people's theology has been caught up in this idea about like the Antichrist. And I'm going to read all four verses, and you'll be like, oh, seems pretty thin. Because I bet a lot of what you think about the Antichrist doesn't actually come from the Bible. It's come from some sort of Bible teacher. Okay, it, they're all in 1 John and 2 John, and it's talking about a spirit. You'll see. It's almost irrefutable. It's talking about a spirit that can be in anyone and in many people at one time. It's not one specific person. Here's the four verses. 1 John 2.18. This is one of the four times the Antichrist is even mentioned in the Bible. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. First uh, John 2.22. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist. How can you think that this is talking about one specific person? Like, yeah, I, would re- I could read these a billion times, and I would never get the idea it's talking about one specific person. First John chapter four verse three. But every spirit that does not, every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus uh, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. Last one. Last mention of Antichrist in the entire Bible. 2 John 1, 7. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. It's an amazing thing. He's saying any person who denies that Jesus came in the flesh is the Antichrist. Like, contributes to this spirit that goes against Jesus Christ. So that's what I believe about. I believe in the false prophet in the book of Revelation that symbolizes, uh, that symbolizes the propaganda that would lead people to war. I certainly believe in that, but I don't believe in the Antichrist as far as a literal person named Nikolai Carpathia uh, for all of you left behind people. <laughs> it's like actual dragons with actual frogs in their mouth. That's cool, but I mean, it's great fiction. All right. Last question for the night is this. What do you think about the rapture? I've been taught that the rapture will happen and then the destruction starts, parenthetically, the tribulation, but will already be taken into heaven. Okay, so here we go. I'm going to go a few minutes long. The rapture belief was uh, created, get ready for this, nobody said the word rapture until the late 1820s is when the rapture came. Uh, There's two guys, John Nelson Darby and Edward Irving. They wrote these books. They're Bible teachers. And they wrote about the theology of uh, the tribulation and the rapture. So if you're new, the rapture is the basic belief that Christians are going to be sucked into the clouds and all the nasty stuff will happen. The tribulation, right? And so then there's all these different people even amongst that. People who are like pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. Y'all heard about that? And basically what that's talking about is like, do you believe that the rapture is going to happen at the beginning of the tribulation? or at the end of the tribulation, or at the middle of the tribulation, also called pre-wrath, is kind of a a famous term for mid-trib type people. But uh, I just love thinking about this, that for the first 1,700 some odd years, people assumed that they were going to be going through the future difficulties that, that they talk about in the Bible. 
a lot like the first century martyrs, uh, that God is going to bring you through those things and preserve you. It's not that God is going to uh, eject you out of it. That's actually a pretty new way of thinking. Not that new thoughts are necessarily wrong, but if you have a thought that goes against 2,000 years of church culture, you better have a pretty flippin' good reason like why you think that. And it's a really new uh, idea. It's just amazing to see different opinions uh, throughout the years when it comes to how all of this stuff um, kind of goes. For me, it's really interesting. When America was founded, uh, these people, they were called the Puritans, and also a lot of Christians throughout history, the Christians of the day, they thought that the next thing that was going to happen was not the tribulation, but was this millennium, 1,000 years, uh, where Christ was going to come. Some people thought it was like literally 1,000 years. Some people thought it was figuratively. But uh, from a Puritan perspective, listen to this, America was the new Jerusalem. So this was like the new place that the millennial period was going to happen. People were going to come uh, to America. Jonathan Edwards, you can, actually, you can actually read, he's talking about like this new compass that they, had, that they had created that would point people to America. And he talks about how this new compass would point people to the new uh, Jerusalem. But that's why a lot of cities and states around here uh, start with the phrase new. So you have New York. They thought this was going to be like the New York which was, of course, England. New Hampshire was like the new Hampshire. And so these were like cities in England, but that was like the old way of doing it. And these are like the new ones because it's part of the new Jerusalem. This is such a different way of thinking about the end times um, than today. But I think it's humbling to just remember, not everyone has thought of it exactly the way that you thought of it. I mean, I, I lived my first probably 20 years of the Christian faith before I realized that there was different people who believed different things about this kind of stuff. But the rapture basics uh, from the Bible is this. Some happens in Revelation, but a lot of it comes from Matthew 24. Matthew 24, Jesus says uh, this. For there, uh, then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been uh, from the beginning of the world until now, no, and will never be. So you have Jesus warning people of this great tribulation, wars and rumors of wars, uh, wars, famines, pestilence, earthquakes. And he says, man, woe to those who are pregnant and their men and women will be in bed and one will be taken and the other will be left behind and there'll be workers in the field and one will be taken and the other will be left behind. Personally, I believe that this is referring to the uh, destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Three quick reasons. Number one, if he's talking about the rapture, why would he say like, woe to those who are breastfeeding? Like what, like what is that? Why would that matter? Like, you know, woe to those who are pregnant. Like, why, why would that make any difference? Like, aren't you anticipating the rapture? But he's not talking about it as far as this is something good that's happening. It doesn't make any sense. Like, does a rap, like, pregnant people, why would it matter the rapture? Is, like, the rapture have, like, a, you know, weight limit or something? Does it make any sense? But he's saying, like, man, woe to you, woe to you. Uh, if the rapture were to come and you were pregnant, it doesn't make any sense, but it makes a lot of sense if what you're talking about uh, is Rome coming to capture you and skin you alive. It makes a lot of sense. Woe to you who are pregnant and breastfeeding because, because uh, you're going to be the ones that are ultimately caught. Number two is this. Uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus ultimately, if, if this was talking about the, re- the rapture, why would Jesus encourage people who are in the field to not go back to their houses but instead flee to the mountains? What does that have to do with the rapture? Like, why, why, like what, that has nothing to do uh, with anything. It doesn't make any sense, but uh, it makes a lot of sense if you're talking about Rome coming to capture you to skin you alive. And while it's true that one will be taken away and another will be left behind, the Bible, to me, it make the, you know, this all makes it very clear that the one who is taken is not the lucky one. It's the person who is taken who's the unlucky one. 
Because they're saying, man, woe to you when they come and take you. Like, that's not how you would be talking about you ultimately finding uh, your destination in heaven. So I don't think, whether or not you believe in the rapture, I don't think you can get it from uh, Matthew 24. Uh, Three, Jesus says also, he says this, that he's talking to that generation and that that generation uh, will not pass away. Check Check this out. Matthew 24. Assuredly, I say to you, after he said all this stuff, this generation uh, will by no means pass away till all these things take place. This generation will not pass away until all this stuff. And Jesus was a true prophet because 40 years later, all this happened. Okay, so uh, Revelation doesn't say a lot about the rapture, but Revelation 4, chapter 1, verse 2, this is a very obscure reference, but I think it's cool. This has played a huge role. These two scriptures have played a huge role in rapture theology. I'm going to read them for you. Uh, Revelation 4, chapter 1, or chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked, and there before me was, uh, was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. So it's a real common teaching that when the voice from heaven says, come up here, that's the rapture. That's, that's what people think. That, like, that's, that's basically what people think. It's like, at that point... In the story, that's when all of this stuff is after uh, the rapture. Here's why I think that's wrong. Like, whether or not you believe in the rapture, it it doesn't seem like it's found in that verse uh, to me. You know, here's, uh, you know, like, you have to understand it the way that the first century would understand it. And I could be wrong, but I think if, if, you know, a voice from heaven were to say to John, get up here, I want to show you some stuff, I would think they would have interpreted that as, get up here, I want to show you some stuff. That's all the verse says. (laughs) And say anything. It doesn't say anything. It doesn't say anything. It doesn't say anything about the church. It doesn't say anything, let alone the church at the end of the at the end of history. No, he's talking to this man named John. It's just bad Bible interpretation to read something into a scripture that's not even hinted at. Uh, uh, so, so, anyways, I need to pass some of this stuff. It's a shame. It's really good. Um... I am running out of time. Okay, no, I'm going. Okay, I want to talk one thing that comes along with the rapture belief that I think is really dangerous. It's called escapist theology. Uh, It's basically, I believe it's kind of unbiblical. It's got some negative side effects. What I call uh, escapist theology is this. I wonder if you've heard this sort of sentiment in uh, the body of Christ before. Man, the belief is basically soon will be delivered from this hellhole, and that can't come soon enough. It's like, I can't wait to escape because this place is the worst. And I believe it's uh, unbiblical, because you certainly see it, the focus of the New Testament is, uh, it's, the hope is not escaping the earth. The call for us is to bring heaven down to earth. Like, God comes to recover, to redeem, to restore, to renew, and he wants to use us to be agents of people who would restore the earth. See, we are the people who pray, your kingdom come, on earth as it is in heaven. See, we're to live in a way uh, and pray in a way that brings heaven to earth, where the people who are here in the earth, they would be able to see a tiny little worldly preview of what heaven would look like. But we're not called to be people who abandon the earth. We're, we're called to be people who are restorers of the earth. We're called to be people who are keepers of the earth. In fact, our original job as humanity was to be landlords of the earth. But, man, but, but like escapist theology, it, it, it gets the hope of the New Testament wrong because it, it makes the world be this thing that's like, man, once we're done with this place, we just like throw it out like a dirty tissue. 
But that's, that's not the way. I believe that this place, um, you know, is, is valuable. And if you believe that, like, this place is just going to be destroyed any day now, you're not going to be motivated to take care of it. You're not going to care for the earth and nature and animals. Uh, and in fact, I just find it weird that Christians almost celebrate their lack of care for the earth. They do. We love it. We celebrate the fact that it's like, man, we don't care about any of this stuff. And it's like we have classically been the people who don't care about this place. And it's so, it's so weird because our first instruction as people, as, as followers of Christ, our first instruction as humanity in Genesis 1 was uh, to take care of the earth and the animal kingdom. It's the first thing he told us to do. Hey, look, hi, I'm God. Take care of the earth. Take care of the animal kingdom. That's what I want you to do. That's our job description. It's our job to care for God's land and God's pets. And there's hundreds of verses where God expresses his passion for the earth and for the animal kingdom. And he calls on us to care for it as well. In fact, and there's tons of verses where God is warning people who don't care for the earth and the animal kingdom. In fact, while we're in Revelation, I have just got one for you. Revelation eleven eighteen says this, the time has come for judging the dead and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Let that one sink in. And he, he cares. There's tons of verses like that. And it, like, so don't say that God's not passionate about the earth and the animal kingdom. This is not a conservative and a liberal thing. Like this is just a follower of Christ thing. What we are called to do are be people who, who take care of this place. And so I think if you're always having the mentality of like, man, I can't wait for this hellhole to be burned up. Well, you're abandoning what you're doing because we're called to care for this place. And so that's one thing that I think, whether or not you believe in the rapture, you you know, you're free to believe in the rapture. Lots of people do. You're free to not believe in the rapture. Lots of people don't. But what you need to do is you need to look at this place that we are currently in, this world, and think this place is valuable. And this place matters. It matters to me and it matters to God. Can I have the band come up? Uh, I think for a lot of people, I went a couple minutes long, uh, I think for a lot of people, uh, the rapture, can end up causing a, a lot of anxiety. And again, you can believe it. You don't have to believe it. Uh, there's definitely a lot of liberty there. But there are people who it gives a lot of anxiety to because they think, man, any day now the destruction is going to come. Everyone's just walking around and they have no idea like the hell that God's about to bring uh, to earth. And it brings a lot of anxiety uh, in people. And if I, if I didn't trust in the character of God as is revealed in the slain little lamb, I would have anxiety too. It'd be scary. It'd be scary to me, but, uh, but I trust in him, you know, and I trust that he's altogether kind and loving and good and compassionate. And instead, he reminds me that I'm called to just live like the birds of the air and the, just like to not worry about all that stuff. They're not all freaked out all the time about all the way that like all this stuff is going to happen. They're not living their life in fear, obsessed with the way that this whole thing is going to wrap up. And that, that's how we're called to be. And when you die, you die. But for us, like that's not that big of a deal. That's not like that bad of a thing because we're assured that this is not the only life that we live. And, and death for us as believers in Christ is just an illusion because, we, because the real us is this spirit that lives eternally. And so, so we don't have to live our life in fear of all of these crazy things that may or may not happen. What, what does that sign mean? What does that sign mean? You watch the news and it's like, man, it's a sign of the times. This is a sign of the times. You can be free of that and you can just trust the little lamb. 
You can say, man, I just know that he, that he is a God who, who conquers the world by laying down his own life, and he's going to take care of me. And as, as I close, I hope those were cool. I hope those were cool points. Um, but as I close, I want to say this, that out of all the things that I believe and out of all the things that I hope that you would believe, um, the character of God is the most sacred. That's the thing that has to be like solid on the inside of you because your interpretation of revelation and creation and the Old Testament, that can change and will change. Remember what you thought like five years ago? I'm sure we'll probably be horrified with what we think, you know, five years from now we'll think like, my gosh, I didn't know anything then. So our our beliefs will change, but it's important for us that like the thing that we hold dear is the character of God and who he is, and what he really looks like. And all of this stuff, all this stuff, if you misunderstand it, it creates distrust in you for a God who's trying to win you over with the beauty of his love. This is what I wrote down. The thing that is sacred is his character, defined by the self-sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. It's the one thing that can't change for us. And as you go and we go as believers into like lots of different churches and I'm sure people will move and we'll, you know, go to different places. Listen, this is the one thing that I pray doesn't change for you. It's the one thing that you're really confident of, no matter what you think about the rapture, no matter what you think about like, you know, all these weird little things. Like whatever you think about that, I pray that you would hold God's character sacred. And this is the thing, this is the thing that I don't let weird theology, I don't let weird preachers, I don't let them mess with this. This is God's character. And this to me is sacred. We can talk about all of this kind of stuff all we want, but this thing for me is the most true. The most true thing that I believe. I will let everything else die that I believe except for this one thing. And it's that God is altogether kind and loving and compassionate and caring. And the comfort that comes from that type of theology is amazing because you can say like, I don't know to a billion things. Like, I don't know. What do you think about the tribulation? I don't know. But you can say, what I do believe is that God is altogether loving and kind and beautiful and compassionate. And whatever it looks like, he's going to look like kind, loving, beautiful, and compassionate. I know that because the thing that I hold the most true, the thing that I hold the most sacred is, is his character. This is what I wrote. Uh, how is the whole thing going to wrap up? This is what I've done. How is the whole thing going to wrap up? I'm not sure, but I know that he's 10,000 times more loving than I am. And I'm confident that when we finally see him, we will be overcome by his goodness, his kindness, his forgiveness, his compassion. I am confident that his judgment will be consistent with his character. Put that in there. I'm, con- I'm confident that his judgment will be consistent with his character, which we know is love. He is love. God is love. And I am confident that his judgment will be consistent with his character. Can somebody say amen? Amen. So we're going to close uh, in communion as we usually do. Um, this is our opportunity as believers. We do this every week. It's our opportunity to turn our eyes back on to Jesus. So I want you to try to do that. You know, if you can forget me for just one minute, that'd be really cool. And just think about, think about the God that sheds his own blood because of his love for other people. And as they pass out communion uh, to you tonight, I want you to spend a minute and I want you to think about the God that 
we understand is Jesus, the God who comes in judgment, and his judgment is this, declaring you righteous, and the nations shall rejoice at the judgment of God. Think about, think about the judgment that comes where he, where he, uh, he, he defeats his enemy to free you, where he, where he uh, battles what his enemy has always been, which is the destructive forces that would hurt you to free you. So think about that, and I'll uh, lead us. So just hold on to your communion elements, and then I'll tell you what to do. What we can be confident of in the Bible, John 3, 17, is this. It says that God didn't come to the world to condemn the world, but he came to save the world. And I would love if you'd find a way to personalize that and say this, man, God didn't come into this world to condemn me. He came to save me. He came, he came to be my rescue. And we all need rescue. He didn't come to say you're empty. He came to say, you're whole. So I want you to spend a minute uh, and take communion. You just take it on your own time. That's how we do it here. I'll give you about a 45 seconds or a minute. I want you to spend a minute uh, in your heart. I want you to be honest with him, invite him in, and then in your own way, I want you to say this to him, and I really want you to mean it in your heart. I want you to say, thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving me me. This is his blood that's shed for you. This is his body that's broken for you. Thank you for saving me. Here's the invitation. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow, and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. So come to the table. So just take a minute, take communion on your own time, and I'll close this out in prayer. Thank you for saving me.
So God, tonight, we just come and we say that you're beautiful. God, you are altogether kind. You are completely patient. You're completely loving. You're completely forgiving. And Father, we rest. The thing that we hold sacred above all other theologies and sermons and ideas and political opinion, all of that, we hold. the thing that we hold the most sacred is you and who you really are how kind and compassionate and all other beliefs fall to that. I will forsake all my beliefs to hold you true. Just like Paul says, man, I endure, I endeavor to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. I want to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I pray for my brothers and sisters in here tonight, Lord, I pray that in their hearts, you would make your kindness and love real to them. Help them to to be confident in your character. Help them to be confident in who you are and the love that you have for us. So we say thank you, Lord. It's all because of you. It's all because of you. So again, we say thanks and we love you. It's in your sons, let me pray. Everybody said, amen, amen. Well, look up at me. We love you guys. My gosh, don't look at that clock. So sorry. Okay, so uh, so I was overambitious. I'll let you go. Next week, we're going to end the series, end a revelation. I'm going to talk, re- talk about the whole thing. We're going to go through the whole book, and uh, we're going to say what this really means. I think we're going to put a really beautiful bow on it. I really think you're going to feel a lot of uh, excitement about the book once we uh, finish the whole thing up. So we encourage you guys to come next week. Also, two weeks. I'm, this is my first time I'm uh, announcing it. A new series I'm starting two weeks from tonight, and it's called this, The God Who Bleeds. The God Who Bleeds. And... Um, this, this series and the last few series have been very, like, um, noodle cooking. cooking. You know, you, you, it's been, like, too much. It's, like, been, like, brain, brain uh, candy. So we're taking a slight break from that, and I think it's going to be good, and I think it's going to be healing to our hearts. Uh, but we're, talk, we're just going to talk about Jesus, man. We're going to talk about uh, the God who takes all the blame, the God who takes all the fear, the God who takes all the shame and all the punishment. So I hope you come. It's going to be really cool. Two weeks from tonight, the God who bleeds. Also, uh, for all you people who come to Happy Hour God Talk, it's David Meyer's uh, great group that's tonight. I'm just reminding you, 645, everybody's welcome to come. It's, it's a small group gathering discussion thing. I really like it. I go to all of them. Uh, tonight, 645, you need that little gate code and you need that little address. So if you want to come, we'd love to have you. It starts in 20 minutes. Uh, you can take a picture of that um, and uh, use that gate code and we'll see you guys there. But other than that, we love you. Thanks for sticking in there with me. You're dismissed. God bless you.